Um, so you can be you can be sitting for fourteen hours on an Alaskan beach, um, you know, watching wolves and bears fishing, which is one of my favourite things I've ever done, I have to say. Or down in Antarctica, um, walking forty five minutes down a glacier and down an amazing hill into a colony of hundreds of thousands of Adelie penguins, um, which again was just. I kind of, I mean, I am really, really lucky. I do love what I do. Welcome to Terra Incognita, the adventure podcast. Today's feature-length episode is with wildlife camerawoman Sophie Darlington. As with a fair few of our guests, Sophie almost certainly falls into the category of somebody who uh, floats much further underneath the radar than she deserves. I met up with Sophie uh, in a borrowed office on a busy street in London, uh, which will explain some of the dodgy traffic noise from time to time. Apologies for that, but um, I should have realised when I set up a podcast about people who live adventurous and exploratory lives that they tend to not be in the country that they live in quite a lot. So pretty frequently we often try and pin people down in, well, borrowed offices and wherever and whenever we can find them. Um, so thanks very much to Sophie for finding a few moments in a very, very hectic schedule to talk to us. It was another one of those lovely interviews where we sit cross-legged on the floor and talk about all sorts of things from uh, Sophie's early days of wildlife filming in Africa to parenthood, um, having some very serious conversations about that, to life as a camerawoman and... Um, also being rigged uh, filming platforms in the tops of trees in the jungle by the one and only Waldo Etherington, who's featured on this podcast uh, three times now. Uh, I can definitely attest to the adventure film world being a very small one indeed. I don't think at this stage much more needs saying about Sophie that she doesn't say herself. Um, As, again, is often the case with guests on this podcast, she comes across as extremely humble and modest, um, I imagine, as I did on that day in London, you'll get a good idea of just how accomplished she really is. Before we kick off, I just want to say a few quick words about Sidetrack Magazine, who we've been partnered with since the very start of this podcast, and their support whilst we were setting it up has been, well, um, unparalleled. If you're a regular listener, you'll have heard me say all of this before, so I will simply say that if you don't own a copy yet, then please go to sidetrack.com and buy a copy of issue 14, where there are all sorts of sensational stories of adventure and exploration. And then in equal measure, I want to quickly talk about Kendall Mountain Festival. Uh, the, the guys at Kendall are currently hard at work touring around the UK, uh, traveling from venue to venue, bringing you all sorts of wonderful tales of adventure from unique individuals who've had amazing lives and carried out incredible journeys. So if you enjoy this sort of content and fancy seeing it live on stage, then head to kendallmountaintour.com and get yourself some tickets. Um, There's almost certainly a venue near you. Okay, let's hear it from the inimitable Sophie Darlington. My name is Sophie Darlington and I'm a wildlife filmmaker. And I got into it by absolute accident. I had no plans. I didn't grow up going, I want to be... You know, I want to be David Attenborough or anything. I grew up wanting to work for Gerald Durrell. My mum found a letter to him that I wrote when I was a kid asking if I could come and work in the zoo. So I think animals were the draw. Um, I also wrote to um, Jim Will Fix It to meet um, 
what's his name? The Australian? <laughs> yeah, anyway, I'm really glad that didn't work out. Um, <laughs> Rolf Harris. I wrote to Jim will fix it to meet Rolf Harris. That would have been a bad day, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that would have been brutal. Yeah, um, it's panned out much better. Yeah, it's panned out because I love drawing too. So um, as a kid, I had a kind of a slightly unconventional childhood, I guess, in as much as um, my parents travelled a lot and I kind of, lots of trips to Scotland and being outside, so always loved being outside. Um, not a keen walker, though. My brothers would go off walking and I would sit and watch the seals. And, would, you know, um, and then they moved to Iran when I was about 10. And that was amazing because we spent every holiday in Iran. And we would go on holiday to Shiraz and Isfahan and Persepolis and the Caspian Sea and these epic car journeys in an old orange Volvo across um, Iran. Um, you know, which was just so unlikely and so amazing, just going to these places that were so unusual and really beautiful, mind-numbingly beautiful. Skies and history and colour and... Anyway, yeah, so that was pretty amazing. And then my mum, when she was out there, met a pilot and fell in love with a pilot. And so she buggered off to Ireland with him. And... Uh, there were six kids and I got brought with. So I'm entirely English and sound Irish. I'm not Irish at all. I have nothing. I, I raised there. Great love for the place, but not Irish. Um, I'm getting a bit roundabout. But anyway, that's the way we go. When I was 18, I'd left school and I had no idea what I wanted to do. Genuinely, I was just like, oh, come on. Because I nothing sort of worked. Uh, you know, everybody kept on saying, go to what college? I don't want to do that. And... Um, my mum had a friend to stay and she'd been on safari in Tanzania with Peter Mathewson, um, who I had no idea who he was. And she had gone with him and a friend and they had seen this fig tree. So there's in this valley. And this is really weird for me to do a podcast because usually everything I do relies on images. And so I have no images to kind of go, oh, look, here's this tree. <laughs> um, but there's a fig tree. If you can imagine these endless, endless, endless plains, green plains going on forever and a valley and it just looks like there's nothing until you get suddenly over this rise and there in front of you is the biggest fig tree you've ever seen in your life. The biggest fig tree. I mean, its trunk is as wide as a Land Rover is long and it's immense. And it's a tree where there are bees and crows and snakes and it's a sacred Maasai um, place. And I saw this tree and I was like, I'm going to see the tree. I'm going to see the tree. So the stepfather is a pilot and so he can get me a cheap ticket and she knows someone who will have me to stay for a couple of weeks if I help out. So I get on a track, I get on a plane and I go to Tanzania and I get there and it's like, holy shit, this is the best thing I've ever seen in my life. I am in love with just everything. It was just, it's terrified me. It excited me. It, um, and the tree was everything. It was everything. Um, and I was meant to stay for a few weeks and I stayed for two years because it was so good. I just loved it. So I just volunteered. I didn't earn any money, but I just um, got involved and helped out with this lodge on the edge of the Ngorogoro crater and met the most amazing people, beautiful people. And one of the groups of people that came through was a BBC film crew. And I was like, oh, hold on a second. I didn't realise, I hadn't really sort of, I'm not particularly bright, I reckon. So I kind of went, oh, I could, I could do that. That's what I want to do. You know, it means being in places like this and seeing 
um, these landscapes. And the landscape really gets me as much as the animals, I have to say. And um, can I have a job, please? Which they wouldn't give me, quite rightly. Um, they said, go to university, which I already knew was not going to work. And so I went back to Ireland because I couldn't stay any longer. My visas had to run out. And uh, went back to Ireland and got a job, the first job I could find to earn a bit of cash, which happened to be as um, in the ink and paint department of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which obviously makes sense. Um, it's actually on my CV still. I love it. It's like all the different things, and at the bottom is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles because I think it's funny. I mean, you've... I can't now ask you the career highlight question because you've already answered it. <laughs> you know it's true. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so a um, couple of years of that, desperately trying to work out how I could get back. This place was just like, oh, please. Um, and again, I think the first time, it's that thing of noticing that you, 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 if you say enough out loud to people, there's always someone who will help you. The people are really amazing. And again, the word went out. And through friends, I managed to find out that this guy, Hugo van Lauwek, needed a camp manager. And Hugo van Lauwek was married to Jane Goodall. And he'd won eight Emmys for his wildlife filmmaking. I hadn't a clue who he was. I didn't have the faintest idea. I just knew he had a camp and he made wildlife films. And he seemed just lovely. Absolutely. And he was. He's amazing, this this passionate wildlife filmmaker, really lovely man. And um, so I went to work as his camp manager. So I was sort of ordering vegetables in triplicate by radio, you know, sort of like sitting in the middle of the Serengeti going, I cannot believe I'm here. But then they're making, they're making wildlife films, which is an amazing thing. So I go out and I help spot with the animals and that he's got an incredible crew there who are really beautiful and share their knowledge. So I get I to learn how to sound record. I get to learn how to spot animals. I get to go and put up camps in the most remote part, right by the tree where man was born, again. So the life is coming circular, which is lovely. And I bugged a load of camera people to kind of train me, to teach me what to do. And there was that moment. There was the one day where he needed another camera person. One of the camera persons were going off and I was like, please, can I have a go? Can I have a go? And he gave me an opportunity, which was amazing. And I shot, he gave me a roll of film, which was about eight minutes. 16 mil and I took a month to film it like every time I pressed that button I was really I wanted every shot to count and then it got sent back to I think the UK I'm not sure and then we had to wait for a month for it then to come back and we got the neg report you know no hairs in gate get in um technically all right amazing what a fluke um and then it came back and we all sat in front of this VCR with the generator going, watching this tiny telly with the rushes. And Hugo kind of went, I think you have the eye. And I was like, yes, get in. Um, and he then put me into an editing room because he said, you're not going to get to near a camera unless you know how to tell a story and you need to know what, which I'm really grateful for. And that was it. I was off. That's not a bad introduction as introductions <laughs> go, is it? I was so lucky. Yeah. Worked hard for my lucky, but I was really lucky. Yeah, that's the thing about luck, is that you have to be in the right place to make it happen. You have to say yes to things that scare you. Yeah, and on that, when you suddenly thought, I'm going to go, and, I'm going to, go to Africa and find this tree, which I would argue isn't a particularly sort of normal thing to do, no. did, did that feel normal to you? Did that feel like an obvious choice? 
It, I don't think I had a choice. I genuinely, I was working, I, I had left school, I was working in a shop. I was the world's shittest model because I'm six foot. And so somebody saw me walking down Grafton Street and at six foot, the only female I would wager in Dublin at that time over of any, you know, and they kind of went, oh, she should be a model. But they didn't take in any consideration about the fact that I was really going to be very bad at it. And... Um, and so I, I hated it. I told everybody I was a secretary, which felt much better to me. But anyway, I was the world's worst and, um, and I, I had no interest in it. It just seemed so puerile and ridiculous. And, and so when I saw the picture of this tree, I also went around ruining people's houses, doing interior decorating. I just, everything I touched, I hated. It felt so just lame. And the minute I saw the tree, there was something in me. And I know it sounds ridiculous, but literally, I had to go and it made complete sense. And my parents supported me, which is really cute, you know? They just like, yeah, of course you have to go. That makes, yeah, off you go, love. <laughs> which was great. Yeah, I guess it probably, well, if they, if they were that supportive, it was obvious to them that you needed to go. Yeah, yeah. And there was, it wasn't like I was trying to make a point. I don't think, I went off in absolute blind ignorance, but just with passion and interest and it just seemed like the perfect get out of jail card. So has it always been Africa that's fascinated you or? No, um, it certainly. And it wasn't Africa. It was Tanzania. It was, you know, Africa is a big, big continent. And it was a little bit. And then I did spend the first sort of seven years in the Serengeti learning how to do it with Hugo, which was amazing. So learning filming from all the other camera people who were around me and working my way gently, slowly up Um but the, the experience of being out there and being able to immerse yourself fully. So it was like, it's not like we went out there for a month. I lived there and, you know, for six months at a time. I and mean, we got paid absolutely appallingly, but it didn't matter as stuff because we were out every day, you know, following one story or the next. Um, so, yeah, I've forgotten your question. That's me. I mean, it's kind of as simple as what happened next. Oh, what happened next? So, yeah, so I... Well, what was amazing was that I I don't have any technical training. I don't have any film school background, um, but I didn't have any fear. And I think, again, ignorance was bliss. I, I do feel that I just sort of leapt into it. It's in hindsight, I look back and I go, you, that was a bit mad. But at the time, it, it was completely, it made absolute sense. And I kind of got the... I got the bit between my teeth and I kind of went for it. And I was so lucky to have Hugo as a champion. And I didn't, you know, again, I was so, I'm so grateful to him, actually, because he, it didn't come up. Once he'd seen that I had what it took in terms of visually to do what I was doing and, and, and I could apply myself and he could see I worked really, really hard. Um, it was more... He gave me an opportunity to be third camera, then second camera. So I'm learning, learning. And then out of the blue, one of um, an American channel asked him for a one hour on Lions. And he said, I think Soph can do it. So he put me together with this amazing producer, Patrick Morris. And we made a film called The Lion's Share um, with help from many other people. Um, and the amazing thing about that was we got nominated for cinematography for it so it was like my first film as a primary and I was up against all my heroes because by now I actually knew about wildlife filmmaking and I had I'd been watching all the films but I just hadn't been paying attention to the credits because who ever reads the credits sorry but I didn't I do now obviously and I did then but um 
And so there I was sitting in a room in Bristol with like Owen Newman and Hugh Miles and Alan Root. And I'm just like, ah, it was such a moment. And I, knew, I mean, if I'd won, it would have been a travesty. Um, and then I started working for other people. So I went to Mongolia, um, which was one of the most amazing um, TV New Zealand said, come and make a one hour on the arid heart of, um, of Asia. And I, that was the best ever, I think, in terms of like, because I was very, very comfortable and happy in Tanzania. But going to Mongolia was like, I flew to Dunedin, picked up the kit. We flew to Ulaanbaatar. And then we went on a 10 week, 5,000 kilometer journey in a, one of those Russian vans that really you can taste and smell that that fuel it's it just it gets into everything I think we all lost I lost about 10 kilos um I spent most of it throwing up because I'm a vegetarian and they <laughs> the night we arrived in Ulaanbaatar it was an all-female crew which even now is really unusual back then in the 90s was pretty much unheard of and in Mongolia we were one of the first crews in there there were very few film crews. This was pre-planet Earth. And we went in and uh, <laughs> taken into an old kind of Soviet-style apartment bot that just reeked. It was rancid with um, boiled mutton. I just remember getting off and you could almost feel it on your skin. And we went up to the 15th floor of this apartment block into this tiny little apartment block. And we were introduced to our cook for the trip, who was amazing, Klauga, and she was going to, she was our vegetarian cook. And we were like, get in, this is great. We're all vegetarians. We're all women. We are popular. We're <laughs> really popular. And um, she comes out with these pizzas and we're like, oh, we're so hungry. We've been traveling for days, you know? It, it was so difficult to get there with so much kit. And on top of all these pizzas, just piles of sausage. And we're like, hmm, what? What's going on? And... and um, sorry, we're vegetarian. She had, yes, sausage is a vegetable in Mongolia. And it turned out she had no idea how to cook vegetarian food at all. So all we had was noodles and tomato sauce for 10 weeks. Oh, God. We went to the Gobi Desert. We went within 40 miles of the Chinese border. We filmed everything from Jaboas. We were mainly filming demoiselle cranes, which are such a beautiful bird. Um, we were camping. It was just the best adventure. You know, we got down to the last 10 litres of water. We had no water. Um, the guys went off to try and find water in the one Jeep that had any fuel in it. We'd run out of fuel. We had our sat phones. We weren't going to die. But it was as remote as I have ever, ever, ever felt. And I remember they came back with 25 litres and I nearly killed Clauga because she started washing her white baseball cap with it. And it was like, Clauga, we have 25 litres of water and you're washing your hat. Um, we went into the Gobi with Choi Jin, who was an ex-ranger who had, and he was an ex-poacher. He had been responsible for, 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 you know, poaching the whole area and he turned, you know, turned gatekeeper. And he didn't speak a word of English. I didn't speak any Mongolian. And we spent three days hiding on top of a rock, waiting for Bactrian camels. And he drew the picture of his life in the sand for me. And it was just the most amazing three days. And we got a shot of Bactrian camels. It was like the most exciting thing. And the minute they heard the um, camera turn on, they were gone. They, and they were like a mile away. But I was so excited. But he told me how he'd, in pictures, how he had um, 
lured wolves in by using the female wolf's urine and you know and he was this what a man what a man you meet such amazing people so yeah so then was Mongolia and then I made another film in Tanzania on lions and lions and buffaloes which was amazing and I came home from that shoot and on the first day I came home I found out actually I didn't it was um New Year's Eve 2000 it was going to be a big night it should have been a big night, so I did a pregnancy test. And it was not a big night. It was a really big night, but I certainly didn't drink anything because I had found out I was pregnant. And so I, that was um, that sort of like... Wildlife filmmaking isn't set up for women, on certainly not women who've got children um, or women who want to have children. It's fine if you're in a couple, in a team, and there have been many, many successful teams and are out there, Mark and Vicky... Um, Deeple Stone are my, you know, just heroes and they raised their kids in the bush but my husband at the time was an architect and my son, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't. So I actually stopped filming for five years because I couldn't work out how to film because the system was so not set up to... Yeah, the system was not so set up. Hopefully one of these days we'll change that. Yeah. Do you think we're moving towards that changing or not? Yes. I think that visibility is key in this industry. And I think that the more people who see that women are doing it, and especially um, not couples, and I think um, that's not in any way slagging off couples, it's just saying women doing it as individuals, the more the norm it will become. And I think that's really important. And there are amazing women coming up. There's not enough, nowhere near enough parity. And that, but that goes throughout the whole of filmmaking. If you look, um, Rachel Morrison, the first woman to get nominated for an Oscar for cinematography last year. The first woman. Come on, people. This is not good enough. But the fact that she got nominated is amazing. You know, that she, you know, that's an amazing thing because other women will go, ah, hold on. So it's just about being more visible, I think. And why do you think it is the way it is? I think that um, it's been an absolutely, um, I'm going to get into all kinds of trouble for this, but it has been a white male preserve, definitely. And it has, I think that when a system works for the people who it's working for, it's very difficult to change it. And, um, and I don't think any of them do it deliberately, but I think it's entrenched. Like all of our lives are entrenched in... We have come, our history has been written by the victors and, and wildlife filmmaking has been a male preserve because also it's got, it's perceived to be really tough, which it can be, really hard, but that's okay. We have children, so we know what tough is like. Um, wildlife filmmaking is a piece of piss in comparison to childbirth. <laughs> that's just all I'm going to say. It really is. Um, and actually not that, actually the two years post is the toughest time. And I, it, I, when I went back to work finally, I was like, this is fabulous. I'm going to get four hours straight sleep. Amazing. It was <laughs> such a luxury. Um, so I think it's, um, I think that uh, it's really difficult. It's a motorbike at a good time. It gives me a moment to think. It's an interesting subject because we, it's not deliberate, it's not conscious, but nobody yet on this podcast has talked about in any detail 
gender in the outdoors, in the adventure world, in the expedition world, and definitely not in the wildlife filmmaking world. Yeah. And I feel a little bit challenged talking about it because I'm a white British male. So it doesn't feel like I have the right to talk about it, but I, I believe strongly in talking to people because they're people. So when we interviewed Professor Dame Jane Francis, she could have been Professor Sir Jim Francis and it wouldn't have made a difference. Of course, of course, yeah. Yeah, and we don't want to speak to people because they're women, in inverted commas. Of course not. But it's extremely important that people like yourself, I believe, and you're welcome to disagree with me, have a voice and are not necessarily ambassadors, but empower other women to follow the same path that you did. I, I guess what I don't want to do is sort of pretend to be anything more than I am, which is I am as someone who has a job that I absolutely love that not many women do. I would love more women to do it. And therefore, if me talking is a conduit to more women doing it, then that's a great thing. So in, in, in adventure filmmaking, in, you know, there are other camera women. There are a few. Yeah, it's on the one hand, right? I could probably... In How many the could world, up? In the specific world that I move in, yeah. I think one springs to mind straight away. Mm. In terms of the real, you know, the people that are doing it day in, day out, I can think of one yeah. person. Yeah. One woman who does what I do. And how old is she? Actually two. Um, 40 and 33. Okay. that's No, it's really interesting because I think that there is... Because if you think about career trajectories, when you, you get into your groove, you get good, late 20s, hopefully, that's when you're starting to really nail it. Early 30s, you're beginning to be really recognised, you're beginning to get work. Boom. That's the time, you know? That is the time. And, and so it's not set up in any way to support that. And I'm not... It, it's just it's sort of like you're going to go with the person who can be more... So we've got to work out, is there in a way? Maybe. Just saying. But I, I think that, yeah, by being more visible, it's really important. And there is no reason why women can't do this job. There is absolutely no reason. There is the kind of default answer, which is it's a bit techy. So I can, I can put together IKEA flat pack furniture. <laughs> you know, I can read a manual. It's all right. Um, a lot of the stuff now for the younger ones is, um, you know, comes from gaming. And again, that tends to be more male than female, but there are certainly plenty of women um, doing, you know, gaming, that sort of like different way of controlling things. <laughs> I'm making the movement of the gaming, which obviously I can't do. Um, and then, so there's the carrying stuff. Yeah, well, Justine Evans is one of the hardest women I've ever seen. She's like, she, you know, uh, you know, she apparently bought a village to stand still in Pakistan and she walked in with like her camera on her back, surrounded by people with Uzis. And she just sort of strode in. She's tougher than anyone, but not because she is anything other than that's her. She is so tough. Um, there is there is no reason. There is no reason apart from having kids. And that is that is the reason I think it stops a lot of people because they get to a point where they're just about to take off and they might have a child and then how on earth does that work? Maybe. This is going to sound really naive, mm. but uh, what I hope is that, you know, I'm 30. Yes. I'm mm. married <clears throat> and would like to have children. And that plays on my mind for various reasons quite a lot at the moment. Yes. And I worry what will happen when I have a child because I don't want to be the sort of father who disappears around the world for eight months of the year whilst my wife stays at home and raises my family. Absolutely. But, but that 
but I could. Well, it's really interesting. I get asked in every interview, how is it being a mum, right? How is it being a mum? As a And I actually have stopped answering that question because it's like, until you ask all my friends who leave their children for an equal amount of time how it is being a dad, can we just not say parent? You know, this expectation. And I mean, there are obvious reasons why mums stay for the beginning bit, but actually just that whole, whole idea of shared responsibility or not, it should be up to people. It should be their choice. If you want to stay at home, stay at home and do it. And it's, as I say, really hard work. It's amazingly, um, it's incredibly fulfilling and difficult and brilliant. And I'm really glad I did it. But all I know is that I had no choice. And I think that people should be able to have that choice or feel that, you as a man can you can share you know and hopefully you will and maybe that's a generational thing I'm uh, you know I'm 52 so I'm maybe you know that much older so things may have changed things may have moved on I hope so I really hope so yeah and I I, I really believe actions speak louder than words they always do and it's very easy for me to sit here and say proudly you know I won't be that sort of father but there's no evidence to say that I won't be you know, I'm talking already about expeditions in 2021 and 2022 mm. that would see me potentially away from my newborn child. Yeah, interesting, isn't it? If I were to have it? a child soon. Ha! And I'm already talking about it, so am I... I, th I think that as long as your partner is also talking about it, about her expeditions or whatever she might be doing, if she's on tour or however she's going, yeah. then as long as they're both mutually doing that, then it's fine. Or, or not... It's, it's, but it's about the, definitely that has to be a hiccup, but there is no other reason why women stop being camera people at a certain age, I think, I don't know. So to focus, you spoke about, you know, there not being many women who do what you do. Mm. When you were on the, in the Serengeti, aged, how old were you when you? I went, the first time I went, I was sort of at 19, and then I went back, I got the job with Hugo around 22, 23. So as a 19 year old, yeah. 23-year-old yeah. woman. Yeah. Did you encounter any? Well, there was Vicky, but she was with Mark. So she was absolutely filmmaking at the time. But she she was, you know, they were a unit. And uh, no, I was, I um, well, and Justine, I'd heard of. Actually, no, there was another lady, Barbara, who stopped. But did you encounter any opposition? No, I was really lucky. I think actually being where I was was incredibly lucky because I don't think Hugo gave a damn about whether I was male or female. It was just whether he liked my imagery and the way I told stories. I think, funnily enough, if I had been based back here, it would have been trickier. But the fact was that I was working with someone who was, yeah, couldn't give a monkeys. Just get on with your job, work hard, apply yourself. So no, it didn't. It didn't. Have you ever encountered opposition? Um, in hindsight, I have had things said to me that really surprised me. People have thought that I've got... Um, one person said to me they thought I'd got what, um, the job because of my legs. I was like, my legs are good, not that good. <laughs> no way. Also, you know, just... No, it, it just ludicrous. I'm, I think the honest people would say, yes, definitely, that... Um, I would really love to think that you get things on merit. Wouldn't that be great? That's so important to me. Of course it is. But also it's like getting to a point where you can get to be noticed. That's the hard bit, right? And I think it's easier now. And I get so many people writing to me saying, please, can I come and, you know, assist you or work with you, which I'm really, it's lovely to get. 
um, even if they haven't read my website where it says, please don't ask me if you can come and shadow me because I'm a long lens camera woman and therefore I work by myself. <laughs> but but it's, it's, you know, getting noticed and it's actually being able to guide people to, you know, the fact that now you've got Vimeo and YouTube and you can shoot stuff and record stuff so much more economically you have access to everything that we didn't when you were shooting film you had to get someone to develop the film you had to edit the film on a steam bag you couldn't you could do it on super 8 but it was really tricky now it's really not that tricky so it's about storytelling and getting yourself noticed there's so many competitions that people are judging you can get stuff noticed really easily which is great i think it's much easier in many ways and people are always just on the lookout for a great story and for a different angle. And you can enter, you know, British Wildlife Photographer of the Year or um, whatever, because they've all got video categories now and they're all judged by wildlife people. So if people are, if you've got a good eye or a good story, it's not hard to get noticed. Yeah. Keep it under three minutes, people. Under three minutes, is oh. that the... Well, just who's got time to watch 15 minutes of someone's film? <laughs> you just don't. <laughs> Sorry. No, it is. No, it's a good point. It's interesting. I mean... Do you think it's accessible? Do you think the industry is accessible? I think it now is the best time, the best time, because there is an unparalleled interest in nature because we have such, the clock is running. And, you know, it's, I actually believe it is terrifying. I've just been out um, doing a bit of press for Our Planet, the Netflix show that starts in April, and um, the, the WWF are co-proing on it. And, and, and we all know this, because we're in the industry, but I don't think people know that we have 10 or 20 years to, to really, really make the difference or, or time to get off people. Yeah, and I'm wary of doom and gloom because it's a battle I have with myself internally quite a lot in terms of the questions that I want to ask because I would like people to sit in their cars and walk the dogs, etc., etc. however they listen to this, and be inspired and motivated and want to get outside. But also I think reality checks are important and I harp on about authenticity and in inverted commas enough that I should stick to it. So what, I'm going to go there is my point. Good, go there, please go there. <laughs> so what do you mean by 10 to 20 years? I mean in within 10 to 20 years, the, the climate change will have done its damage. If we don't, if we don't make the adjustments now, Within the next 10 to 20 years, the oceans will have acidified. We will have lost so much of all the, um, the things that we can do. The, this is the really annoying thing, right? It's so easy to stop. And it's not, it's not um, a matter of everybody has to do that. You know, it's, it's really easy. It's a matter of, you know, just check who you're banking with. Don't bank with people who buy palm oil and plastics and fossil fuels. Um, you know, um, single-use plastic, we all know. Um, eat less meat, we all know. Um, you know, try and use public transport. It's, it's difficult when you live somewhere there isn't, but there are things. I mean, as I say, where is your pension? Is it with someone with an ordinary bank? Shout, because if you shout, they're moving their money. You know, they're not going to. And the other thing is this whole denial of fossil fuels. Um, there is so much money to be made in clean energy. And so, you know, the amount, this the WWF... Um, um, leader was like telling leader that's not what he was but I forget his name because my brain is cheese but he was talking about um, the amount of 
um, jobs that would be generated if we could just get people to wean themselves off fossil fuels and go into renewables. You know, there is so much industry. So it's just, and it has to come from the top. And, but it, for us, it's about shouting. You know, I think Extinction Rebellion are brilliant. I'm so I'm so thrilled there are these grassroots organisations that are actually, and all the kids last week, I was just like, I don't know about you, just made me so proud and happy to go, yes, you know, there you are, you're actually shouting about something you give a damn about. And damn Theresa May and all the politicians who said you were bunking off school. You're bunking off school because you want to have somewhere to go when you leave school. Um, so I was, yeah, I think that there, I think it can... It, it's not hopeless. That's the whole point. It's not hopeless. But we do have to get off our asses and go now. Yeah, I'm pleased that you said that it's not hopeless because it can feel hopeless sometimes. Doesn't it? I mean, bleak. But also when you... I mean, for lots of people listening who don't spend their entire life... You know, we all wish we did spend more time outside, but you spend, I think it's fair to say, the majority of your life working in these places, witnessing these things firsthand. Mm. Yeah. But to hear you say that it's not hopeless is actually quite a powerful statement because... You know, you're very qualified to comment on whether or not it's hopeless or not. I don't know if I'm very qualified. I've, I tell you what, I have seen in the 30 years since I started filming to visually see how climate change is knocking on. Every time we do a sequence, every time we go out there, people go, never used to happen like this. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's really scary. And I think that it's taken us a long time to get people to admit to want to see it on television because everybody was like, no, no, it's just, you know, fingers in our ears, la, 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 it's all great, it's all perfect. So I'm so pleased. I think we just need to up our game. Everybody has to up their game. And I'm, um, it's not doom and gloom. It isn't, but it will be. It will be. I mean, it, it is like, will Louis have children? Genuinely, my 18-year-old son, will he be able to have kids because will there be a planet worth having kids for? Yeah, that's the big question, isn't it? It's massive. It's massive. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, and, and people go, but you fly around the world, you know, making your documentaries. Well, I do, but I hope to God that they have um, some kind of, the reason we make them is because we want to motivate people to give a damn. Yeah. And what do you think, I don't know the answer to this, but what do you think needs to change in terms of the way we view content? Do you think that you know, adventure is sexy, wildlife filmmaking is sexy, people want to watch these programs. Wildlife filmmaking is so not sexy. I mean, it's really funny. The making of always makes me really laugh. I can't bear these machismo ones, you know. I, I really like the truthful ones. I just did um, Dynasty's Lions. And at the end of it, John and I and all of the crew, we all write, we were like, we have the best job in the world. We are not moaning about this once, you know, because it's amazing that we get to sit out here and do this. But actually, watching lions is possibly the most boring thing in the world to do. Um, um, you know, we were sort of like, I remember years ago, someone did a time lapse of an egg, a boiled egg moving around the car because that was the most exciting thing they could do. And I wanted to repeat that for the making of because I thought it would be classic and true. There is a tendency to glamorize our jobs. We all know that very little of it is glamorous. <laughs> I mean, it's like the expedition world. It's 5% action and 95% waiting for things to happen. Yeah, exactly. Or sitting re in the back of a plane because the BBC quite rightfully put you right in the back where you've got no legroom. And, and that, the other thing that you actually do encounter danger because you hang off ropes and stuff. Uh, as a rule, I tend not to because everybody's done their homework. And if I'm doing my job well, I don't get in any trouble. Um, I think the most dangerous thing about my job is getting DVT on a plane um, or sitting in a hide. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, 
it says a lot about your career if you're, you know, injury free and. Well, I mean, I'm scarred mentally, but I'm 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 a long lens camera woman. That means that I have to be far away from an animal. So, you know, if I'm getting I've been hit once by an animal and that was when it was very badly hamstrung and it confused us, I think, for a lion and it missed us. It was a buffalo. It was damn close. It was really scary. But actually, you know, I've I've had, you know, a, a pride of lion sneak up on me and fart zebra from underneath the car and nearly kill us from fumes. But genuinely, um, you've got to be a fool. <laughs> no, but you do. I mean, you can have bad luck and you can have a snake or, a you know, or a bug or and most camera people I know, the biggest trouble they get into is with disease um, or with people. People are dangerous. Animals tend not to be. Yeah, people are unpredictable. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we've talked quite a lot about all sorts of different things and drifted in various directions. What? I have a habit. I, I'm, 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 I have a, my my fella and I. Um, there's a thing we we go off on tangents. I'm sorry. I think oh, it's wow. part of being a nature person because you have to be distracted by things constantly. So moth is the. I think it's the expedition lifestyle as well. You spend so long sitting in base camp talking to people that you just. It's the best bit. You go all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. So, easy question then to keep us on track. What is your job? What do you actually do and what does the day look like? That's a great question. What do I do? So I am um, I'm a bit of a one-trick pony in as much as that I do long lens camera work. And what that means is that I sit very far away and with a lens that's maybe... I work primarily on a 50 to 1,500 millimetre lens, which means that I can zoom in a huge amount um, and... I do slow-mo as well, I do thermal, I do lots of things, but what I really love is there's something about looking down a long lens at an animal and or a landscape and framing it that really moves me. And there's something, um, you know, getting the behaviour, getting the... Sounds a bit twee, doesn't it? It really moves me, but it does. It's something incredibly engaging about what a long lens does to a landscape. And I really... I have a massive respect for the landscape I'm in and therefore I don't like to be... I don't like for me or the viewer to be too... I don't want them to know there's a camera there. So long lens allows you to have that respect, I guess. It's about that respect and distance from an animal that really I love. So I sit far away from things. Um, I've done a lot of big cats, a lot of lions, a lot of cheetahs um, and bears and a lot of predators, apex predators, which are very, very exciting a little bit of the time and really exciting like yeah really really exciting a tiny bit and then mainly quite dull um but then you get to look at everything that's around them that's the best bit um so i'm a wildlife camera woman but with a speciality of long lens i don't do um there's a lot of amazing talent out there doing um macro um doing drone which has just come up massively in the last while and is you know it's incredible um and uh, gimbal work which is really beautiful when used to tell a story um, or really exciting when used to tell a story I don't like it when it feels like I'm going round around an animal for no particular reason I'm like what's going on but that's just my own preferences maybe because I'm 52 yeah things get trendy don't they time lapses were trendy and now it's gimbals and drones and we'll find something else later please god yes <laughs> I don't believe in god by the way but there you go. <laughs> so just a quick so a quick glossary for those who don't know What's macro and what's a gimbal? Macro is the amazing gift that people have of taking you into the world of the miniature. 
So looking at the world of insects and tiny things and bringing them up into scale. And gimbling is using a gimbal, a, a stabilization technique, be it from a helicopter, on a person, on a car. So it's effectively, there's, there's a few types. There's a type which you walk around with, a Ronin or a Movi. And then there's a Cineflex, which you put on helicopters or um, vehicles or boats. And that gives you a long lens um, from a very stable position. So you're getting some extraordinary, extraordinary sequences that we could never have got before. And technology has just enabled us to look into nature in an amazing, amazing way. Yeah, it's all changed quite a lot, even in the short time I've been doing it. It's insane, right? Yeah. So, yes. Do you have a favorite camera? Yeah, I do. It's a weird, it's a weird question that in a way, because I, I specialize in working in remote places doing basically everything yeah on my own with small teams on expedition amazing so i'm the photographer and the filmmaker and the drone op and the director and the... i'm so impressed well I, but it's uh when i started doing it that was what people did we were the mm. it was the era where the bbc internships were disappearing mm. and you had to learn to do everything to do one-man bands and dslr filmmaking my favorite camera without question is a stills camera with a video function because i've got one with me just in case you'll let me take your picture or in case there's something to film, I have it everywhere I go. Nice. And I can do whatever I want with it. Yeah. So, and it's, but it's interesting, the specializations, because you spend your life hanging outside of a Jeep with a 1500 mil lens. Yeah. And I have no idea how that even works. I mean, I looked at some of the photos and the size of the gear using. It's insane. It's insane. Or, or sitting on a one metre by one metre platform that Waldo has put up for me, uh, 40 metres up a tree, strapped on, going, ah, I can't turn around. <laughs> it's a nightmare. Um, but it's, it's, um, it's a very peculiar skill because everybody goes, oh, you're a camera woman. Could you come and film this? And I'm like, yeah, great. Could you go about 100 metres away and run really fast? I'll be all over that. But put me in a room trying to film people. I'd be like, mm, no, of course I'd be all right. But I, you don't do sync filming because usually you're far away so you don't do sound as well as filming when you're far away because it's like you're never on speed anyway you never shoot I mean it's I am I but I love what I do I'm really passionate about it and I have I'm really lucky I can make a living out of it I'm yeah deeply grateful yeah it's a wonderful thing to do I mean saying yeah saying you're a camera woman can you come and film this is sort of like saying you're an athlete can you come and throw this shot put and you say well, actually, I'm a marathon runner, but I'll try. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, you did that too, yeah. So. That's funny. That's funny. And, 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 yes. So an ordinary day can look like, it can look like many different things, but it's always dictated by what you're trying to film, obviously. So if you're filming bears in Alaska, you get up as early as you possibly can and you walk down the beach to where you think the bears are gonna turn up and you put yourself and your assistant, because my kit weighs an absolute ton. It's a beast and I'm strong, but not like run around strong with the kit I've got. Um, so you can be you can be sitting for 14 hours on an Alaskan beach, um, you know, watching wolves and bears fishing, which is one of my favorite things I've ever done, I have to say, or down in Antarctica, um, walking, 45 minutes down a glacier and down an amazing hill into a colony of hundreds of thousands of Adelie penguins, um, which again was just a kind of, I mean, I am really, really lucky. I do love what I do. It's not easy and it's 
you 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 really mess up your friendships because you're away you'll know this it's when you're away from home so much you mess up pretty much everything i've got very patient and wonderful friends but you meet amazing people you form these incredible bonds with the people you're working with on location you meet the people who know the animals you're working with who are unparalleled you meet people like waldo who blow your heads off you know because they're so joyful and they love what they do and so you kind of all mesh together in this this incredible um, pool, uh, this experience in, in places that can never be replicated. You know exactly what I'm talking about. But you can be... So for me, it's like getting up and finding your animal. That's the trick. Always a good start. And then um, sitting with them and just observing. And that's there's a beautiful meditative kind of quality to what we do as well. Because you... I th- I've been accused slightly of being a control freak at home. And... Just in terms of like, I like to know what's happening, what's going on with the day. And obviously when you're wildlife filmmaking, there is nothing that you can control. The weather, the animal, it's all reactive. And there's something really lovely about having that all taken away. You're, you have to be in the moment. And that's a really, really healthy thing, I think, for everybody to be in the moment. That's why we all love getting out into nature because you're, you have to be in the moment, you really do. Is there an element of the, the skills outside of your camera work that appeals? To what extent do the, you know, you have to look after yourself, you have to get there and stay, you know, hydrated and not getting sunstroke? I think we're all awful at that. Pretty much every camera person I know is really rubbish at remembering sunblock, hydration. You're kind of like, you're suddenly, you know, you're 12 hours in and you're throwing up, oh, I forgot to drink. You know, it's like you get engrossed in stuff. Although I am one of those people that I need food constantly. So... Mongolia is a painful memory because I can remember just like being so hungry that all I could, you know, think about was like anything, anything. The next time we went, we bought a kiwi with us who could cook and um, she would make like brownies in in Choi Balsam whilst, you know, we were being spot checked for rabies in our marmots that we didn't have. You know, when you think about your career, you've been doing this for 20 years, is it? Because of Louis, I stopped. So, yeah, I've been doing it on and off since um, 1991. Yeah. That's a a while. It is a while, isn't it? And when you think about your career, you know, what are the images that pop up? What are the moments that you think that is absolutely career-defining? Definitely, um, I think the first time I witnessed lions doing something, that sort of like that first moment, I remember it, and it was very hard fought of, of filming a kill. And everybody kind of, everybody does that thing where they go, gosh, isn't it really hard watching an animal killing another animal? And I think that with us, you're just so busy trying to keep it in focus. You don't think about anything and you're, you're so engrossed in your work and making sure you're doing it. But I do remember that moment. Um, a lioness jumped over a wildebeest. It was, it was, it was just a beautiful thing. I'm, I'm sure if I look back at it now, it wouldn't be. But it was um, sort of knowing that I could do it, I could deliver. Um, but in terms of, there's been so many moments. Um, going to Antarctica was an extraordinary career-defining. It was that they trust me enough to put me out in the windiest place on Earth for a month, myself and my camera assistant, Julie Monnier, um, and... The two of us were there with some scientists, obviously, supervising us. But um, we were there for a month in Cape Crozier and it was, that was 
there's you know what it's like when you're out there on the edge of the world and there is no fallback on anything it's all about what you do and if you muck it up or if you get it right but about being in that place and it was that was very very special um but also you know finding yourself up a tree um in i think my first night i ever spent up a tree alone um tied to a tree in the amazon in the flooded forest and Fear, proper fear, because this was not my element. This was not where I belonged. But I really enjoy that feeling of putting myself into areas of discomfort. And how does that feel? And it always generates interest, I think. So being up that tree and having a thermal camera, so all you can see is what's warm and not knowing, you can't look behind you. You, you know, I, I, I'd learned to climb in the, in the flooded forest. I'd had my first climbing lesson two days before. Um, and um, I'd been taught by Tim Fogg, who is should be on your sh- this. T- Tim Fogg okay. is amazing, another climber, but a beautiful Tim and Pam, um, amazing people. And he had patiently taught me to go up a tree. And as I was going up, I remember sort of like going. Uh, everybody sort of really drums in the bullet ant to you, don't they? In the Amazon, they're forever talking about bullet ants. And I'm going, Tim, there's a bullet ant. He's up the tree, I'm down the tree. There's a bullet ant. He went, I don't know, it's a wood ant, it's fine, it's fine. And so I kind of like haul myself very inelegantly up this tree. And it's really hot and it's really clammy. And it's it's sort of amazing because suddenly I'm 30 metres up a tree and we're up there and I'm, Tim is like, well done, that's great. And, and he goes, oh, look, it's a bullet ant. And of course they were bullet ants. Um, but he'd just been like, which they're not ever going to go for you. I didn't know that at the time. But I just remember seeing Flash Gordon as a child and that was all that was going through my head. <laughs> so <laughs> like, what, what happens if a bullet ant goes for you? Um, if you get bitten by it, there is the, the Schmidt pain index. You don't know about the Schmidt pain index? Sh- I think it's called the, it could be even called the Schmidt Klein. We'll have to look it up. But it's, there is a pain index, um, one to nine, I believe. And one is a kind of, one or two is a bee. Nine is a bullet ant. It really hurts, right? It's the ones that make Bruce Parry cry. It's the ones that, you know, you know, if you're going to do rites of passage, they put their hands into gloves full of them and they scream. And it's, they're, you know, those brilliant things. Those are them. They're not good. No, you don't want to be bitten by them on the camera platform. Apparently it really hurts. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think the most surprising thing that happened was I was bitten by at least 98 different types of mosquitoes. So I'd come down with my face swollen because you can't put DEET on your face because you'll melt the camera equipment. Uh, but I I think a frog landed on me in the middle of the night and that was like, oh, that was exciting. And that was sort of it. But, you know, you kind of think that all the snakes in the world are going to come and get you. All the, you know, your imagination goes mad, doesn't it? At night up a tree in the Amazon, you're like, whoa, I love that. How did you develop these skills, though? I mean, outside of the... <laughs> Blind ignorance. Because, <laughs> you, you know, you just said, I was in the Serengeti, you know, obviously paraphrasing, I was in the Serengeti, and then I was in Mongolia, and then I was in Antarctica, and then I was in the jungle. Yeah. Well, I was in Antarctica just a couple of years ago, but in the jungle, um, there was a great moment of opportunity where you get asked to do the most bizarre things, and I think there was, a, it was an expedition, and Justine Evans, who's an extraordinary camera woman, um, who specialises in night filming and tree climbing and is really good at both those things. And she's also a woman, so we obviously get confused because there are about two of us of the same age um, and skill set. And, um, <laughs> yeah, so she was having an operation on her ankle, so they thought, we'll get in the other one. 
<laughs> Literally, I'm pretty sure that's what happened. <laughs> and I was like, but I've never climbed a tree before. And they were like, yeah, be fine. And it was. Because you have people like Tim or Waldo who are there saying, we'll make sure you're safely up the tree because they've done their due diligence and they're, they're really thorough. We, I don't know about your line of work, but where we go out, the amount of stuff, the safety stuff that the people in the office who spend years prepping our trips, we just go out for that month, but they spend forever. The paper trails must be. So your work is freelance, right? I'm a freelance, yeah. I'm a freelancer and have always been a freelancer, which is difficult because you have lean times and you have busy times. And it also means that you don't own anything you shoot. So you say, here's the footage, and you have no control over what happens to it, which can be, you know, an interesting thing as well. You're the same? Well, no, I'm the opposite, actually. I tend to say most of the stuff I shoot, I tend to then edit, or the team I work with edits. And you own. Yeah, and I own. You see, that's great. Don't do what I do. It's a rubbish idea. My day rate has a different amount of numbers in it. Though, I doubt it. <laughs> well, I think wildlife camera people are paid possibly the worst on oh, the really? planet. Yeah, yeah. Just, just by the way, anyone who wants to get into it. Well, I was going to ask you towards the end about, um, I, and I'm going to struggle to say the word, anthropomorphizing. You said it. You I nailed did. it. Yes. Um, animals. Yeah. And how you feel about, you know, you go and do these shoots, you spend months of your life capturing something, and then... How do you feel about the way that animals are portrayed in the programmes that you have made, essentially? So something like Dynasties, um, the producer, Simon Blakeney, um, an incredible human being who had conversations with all of the crew about how we felt about Charm in particular and was out on the shoots with us. And we were all very happy. One, we had not called her Charm. She'd been called Charm by um, the lodge where she was close to. Um, We didn't give any of the lions names. We went with what the guides had called them but we I defy anyone who has a dog not to sit there and give a line characteristics because there are definitely and I, I mean I've, I'm on record saying it there are lazy ones stupid ones funny ones really really smart ones and that goes with lines I wouldn't say it goes for all it's much harder with birds to give them you know to anthropomorphize for obvious reasons but um I hate it sometimes sometimes I when they cutify things and simplify things, it drives me mental. And they avoid things and they don't want to say things because it'll upset people. Well, you know what? It's nature and it is upsetting. It's not pretty at times. It is amazingly beautiful at some times and really heartwarming. But at other times, it's as ugly as we are. Um, I think Jane Goodall said that about chimps, how her, she was devastated to find out that chimps, she'd always thought they were the better version of humans. And the devastation she, when she found out that they were as capable as violence as we were. Um, so, um, yeah, I think there's a, a, a degree of anthropomorphizing is inevitable. Some people just way overdo it and it's not for me. It, science is really important, right? You know, base it on science, base it on facts. And everything we did in dynasties is, is based on observation, but also science. And can you talk to me a bit about Dynasties? So what was that like as a project? Dynasties was one of those gifts because um, I've done a lot of 
sequence work, I haven't worked on one animal since African Cats, which was 2008, was when I started filming that. And that went for two years. And I was with one family of cheetah for two years on and off. So they, when the BBC came to me and said, would you like to make a lion film? I'm like, yeah, because I've only made about 10. And I think, but actually I genuinely believe that there was new things we could show about lions. And um, you never know what's going to happen. So we set out... Um, I got to work with John Aitchison, another incredible long lens camera per person, and Luke, who did the thermal stuff, and Mark, who did the gimbal slidey stuff. And we, um, when when Simon and I went out, um, we kind of chose Charm because we knew her history, and it was all about Dynasty's great name, um, really uncomfortable name. We kept on hoping it was going to change because everybody kept on thinking, are the lines going to be in shoulder pads and wearing, you know, like... 80s television drama stuff um so we went out we chose charm because we knew her history we knew it, it sort of took away a lot of the groundwork and we did i think i did 11 shoots over the two years and every time you go back one you wouldn't know if you would find charm alive wouldn't know what was happening would the story ever happen would you know the males didn't turn up so for all of us um I think that we all knew that the poisoning was coming. We had told the authorities, um, the problem is so complex. It's not as simple as pointing a finger and saying they're the bad people and they're the good people because it's so complex and I'm only a visitor to that place. And so it's really hard to go in, but we could see that there was an issue and often the issues are political more than than, you know, than, than practical. So I, as I say, I don't live in Kenya. I wouldn't dream to presume, but I can tell you as we thought it might happen and we hoped it wouldn't, mainly because we just saw the cattle coming in and we saw the lions looking at them. And it was just like, how could it not happen? And um, I, really, I really don't want people to have come away from that pointing a finger at the herdsman because I don't think it's, it's actually as simple as that. Can we... I know you've talked about it a lot online and obviously yeah. in the programme, but for those that haven't seen it or know the story, can you explain a bit about what happened there? So we followed a pride of lions from um, a female lion who had um, a beautiful big pride, herself and her, um, we'll call her her sister, she's not, but lions form close matriarchal, French, not friendships, groups, sisterhoods, and charm and, <clears throat> and her pride. Um, had no males. The males had gone off and they were busy with other other females in other prides. We expected males to come back at any time. They didn't. And what happened was Sienna, her, her sister, um, got um, injured really badly. We don't know how. We suspect maybe Buffalo got her. And she was recovering and the lions were being pushed all around the place because they had no mail. They were moving around really quietly, trying to sneak under the radar. And because of pressure on the park, um, it was very dry. The herdsmen were bringing in their cattle at, at night to graze illegally. And um, the lions went for a cow. They poisoned the cow. They poisoned three of our pride. Sienna died, Alan died, and Bibi died. Three lions. And... It was devastating because we knew all the lines very, very well. And as particularly Alan, who was my favourite line, and I am entirely responsible for calling him Alan because he, um, 
I, you just never think he was the greediest line I've ever seen ever and he was always the last one on a kill and he was one of the youngest him and his sister and um, you sort of see charm almost looking back and talk about anthropomorphizing but you just see her looking back and it was like Alan 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 <laughs> and hence we kind of called him Alan never imagining how it would turn out in the end I'm really glad I wasn't there John and the team were there when they found the lines, they reported the lines being <clears throat> unwell to the relevant authorities. So they died, which was, um, and they well, actually, Alan had to be put down. Um, and the only comforting thing about him being put down was that they found out that he was so badly damaged internally, he would never have made it, even if the vets had got to him quicker than they did. And they did an amazing job. Hats off to them. Um, but it was... It was a dreadful thing, but I think it made people understand that there is conflict with people, which is something that hasn't really been acknowledged and something that I think they handled very, very well. And it was a very, it's 50 minutes is all you get in a film. It's really quick. You know what it's like. You don't have enough time to go into it, but I hope it provokes conversation. And as I say, there is no finger pointing. There is no, those guys who poisoned that, that there were many, many different reasons. It's not as simple as, you know, I got a bit upset when I saw some of the online comments. I think that's a story that will just continue to be talked about. It's one of those things that, yes, it <clears throat> was presented to the world in the form of that documentary, but it'll carry on being discussed for years and years. It's, it's going to play out in every single ecosystem because every single ecosystem you visit is having us encroach on it. Every single one, all of us. But, you know, it's, it's global. Um, so, yeah, you're right, sadly. It's really sad. It is. And we talked a little bit about, we talked quite a lot about climate change, etc., and doom and gloom before. But for you, as a person and a human being, what does it, you know, you're there as a witness. Yeah. You're there with exactly. a long lens. Correct. And you're there to observe and yeah. to capture and to leave. Yeah. But it's not quite that simple. And you leave with memories. Yeah. And what does it do to you emotionally when things like that happen? Um, as I say, I'm really glad I wasn't there because when I got a phone call saying it had happened and it was just after Christmas and um, Sammy Muneni, who is the Kenyan wizard wildlife guru that I work with in when I'm in Kenya, um, rang me and told me. And as I say, John did an extraordinary job. The whole crew did an amazing job capturing that moment um, it's, I, I'm not sure I could have done it. Devastated is a genuinely, even now, I got, I've got a framed picture of that line on my wall because I, I just, you get up every day and I look forward to seeing him. He was such an idiot. He was so brilliant. And he always was just amazing to watch because he was young and he was sort of full of beans and he, was, he wasn't particularly pretty. Um, he was possibly ugly. <clears throat> um... And so I've now got a picture of a really ugly lion on my wall, which is a disaster because everybody's like, what? It's like the least magnificent, but it's the lion. So you, you form absolute emotional attachments, as anyone would, but as you say, you're there as a witness. You never interact with them. Um, so it's quite a complicated relationship. You want to make sure that, that they, it really matters to all of us, I think, with what we do, is that it affects people. And if having to show... Alan dying and, you know, affected people and made them care more, then that's not for, you know, it's cheesy, but it's not for, it's not, he's not wasted. 
Yeah, no, it isn't. That's not cheesy. Yeah. So there must be moments where you've considered stepping in. There must be that moment where you you think. No, yeah, no, actually, no. Um, I and I I'm really glad I had the training I had from Hugo, because Hugo was a believer that you never set up a shot, you never interfered. We were there to observe, and that's the school I came from. Was nothing was orchestrated. It was. It, it might mean, I mean, it's not very economical in terms of filmmaking because it might mean you have to sit and wait. Um, and there's a very, very strong moral line that pretty much everybody, I mean, it certainly wouldn't work with anyone who didn't have it because um, I, I find it, <clears throat> yeah. I, I watched a cheetah being speared by a Grant's gazelle and literally lifting her up. This was way, way back and lifting her up and you saw the horn go through her belly and I knew she was gone. So I radioed through to the cheetah scientists and there was nothing they could do um, and they weren't on site and I had to watch her die. And she had three cubs, which meant I had to watch them die. That's brutal. Now, a lot of people say they're endangered, you should have picked them up. Pick them up and done what with them, you know? Where would you go with those cheetahs? There isn't like a cheetah animal rescue hospital and I have a real problem with... Um, there is a sort of school of thought that what you do is you pick them up, you protect them. And there is, I understand that, but then you release them to the wild. How do you give them the skills to know that a hyena is coming up behind them? How do you get them to know about lions? You know, how do you prepare them for the real world? What are you doing? Putting them in captivity. Is that a great solution? Um, I, I know this is controversial. It's difficult. But um, there is one school of thought whereby they guard the cheetahs when they're out there every day. Um, they have 24 hours. They have a car with them to protect them from lions or from hyenas stealing their kills. I'm like, well, how on earth is that cheetah ever going to learn that a hyena is a bad thing if a car is always driving it off? Because you're not going to be there 100% of the time. There will be times when it's, it's sort of, it's, it's such thoughtless conservation. It's just ridiculous. So I'm, I'm a, I think that we need to step in if there's a human problem, so the lions were poisoned by humans, we're in. We're in and involved. We're, we're, you know, we're always letting the relevant people know. But if it's something that nature is doing to itself, then we're not there to do anything but record it. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so I, the, the penguin thing was great. The guys in dynasties who carved the steps out for the little penguins who couldn't get out. For me, that was fine because there wasn't, it wasn't like they were changing the dynamic. They weren't, there wasn't... Um, I'm rambling again. I do. You're ramble. not rambling. It's when you look back at what has been so far. I think it's fair to say a sensational career. Thank you. What are you most proud of? Not what do the awards people and juries say that you're best for. What are you proud of? I'm proud of those moments when I look at my footage. The in, in terms of what I look at, in terms of the footage, I'm proud of, you know, those moments which capture the beauty and the, the moment, that absolute moment, whether it's a cheetah rising up through cobwebs or a, um, uh, you know, there's a particular moment. It's about light usually. So visually, it's always about light for me. That, those, but I can't be proud of those, can I? I'm really proud of um, the, the relationships actually I've formed of people along the way. Um, they're really, really special. Um, and, and I work with an incredible bunch of people. I think it's fair to say that people who work in wildlife 
don't do it because they want to be famous or want to, um, they actually genuinely give a shit about wildlife and um, which makes them really interesting and, and madly qualified. So many of them have degrees in zoology, you know, um, have, I spent last night with some friends of mine that I met whilst filmmaking. Um, she's a vet. She's off today to try and um, get rid of rabies in the world. You know, not a bad aim, really. People who do things that really matter, you know. Um, and, and I think those are the, I'm proud of, of my alliance and friendships that I have with them. I'm really proud of my son, who will hate me for saying that. But I am. I'm madly proud of him um, for being who he is. Um, I don't know. Proud isn't actually... Do you know what? I'm not really happy with the word proud. I find it really uncomfortable. Why is that? Um... Because it's sort of, I don't know, it's sort of, I don't know, it's just a word that I don't, I, I, I find it, um, it's a bit me, 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 I don't know. It's just something I don't really, I don't, um, yeah, it's, um, that's why I like doing what I do, because you forget about you. Well, you're on the other side of the 1500mm lens. Yeah, which is a really say, nice place to be. Yeah, and as you say, no one, no one reads the credits. Yeah, it's true though, they don't. I'm sorry, is that an awful thing to say? But <laughs> no, it's, it's true, true of course though. It is. And uh, yeah, so I think that when I look back, I'd like to feel I was sort of, I was thinking about this the other day actually, was with some, one of my friends I was talking to, and it was sort of like she described me as a pioneer with an unconventional life, and I thought, that's a bloody lovely accolade, I'll take that. Um, yeah, that's about as good as it gets, I think. It's, no, it's awesome. And I've never felt of that myself. I really haven't. I think I've fallen into it. I think that I've just kind of run at things blindly, not looking too deeply. And if, if it's scared me, I've usually said yes. And that's been to my benefit. But I've also... That thing about... Um, I was talking to a bunch of kids the other day through that amazing um, Speakers for Schools um, um, Pip that um, the, you put me in touch with and you go and you speak to a school it's the most terrifying thing it's much scarier than any shooting I've ever done you're in a room of a hundred teenagers all looking at you like yeah come on then and you're like uh. and I was out in Billericay and they were amazing bunch of kids and I just sort of I, th I think that if I had known what I tried to say to them was that I always tried to fit in I always, when I left school, I was like, I really want to fit in. I want to fit in. But where do I fit in? And I couldn't work it out. And I didn't realise I could make my own Sophie-shaped thing to fit in. And I'm, I, I'm really glad that I've managed to make a Sophie-shaped thing. Yeah, seems to have gone pretty well. But yeah, I'm slightly surprised. And I'm, I'm trying to end all of these now with... Sort trying of, to tie it up, people. Well, try, it's sort of similar in the same questions because I'm... I do this because I'm fascinated by people. That's yeah. like the driving force yeah. for me. And I am increasingly amazed by the correlation, with, you know, with the answers and why people do things. You know, a wildlife filmmaker is f one of the things you're most proud of, or we won't use that word, that you like the most. Yeah, no, I know. It's a, I just know I'm just so thrilled that I've, I, I do it. Yeah. Genuinely thrilled. But you talk about relationships with people. And Definitely. that is, it's such a big recurring theme. Mm. It's. I haven't listened to any of other podcasts other than Waldo's because obviously having met him and he told me about the podcast and I was like, so when I was, I'm just genuinely think it's a lovely thing, but 
I want to now listen to them all because I didn't want to bias myself because I was scared that everybody is going to be so damn impressive. <laughs> it's just like, because I'm not an adventurer. I am not, I'm, um, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm definitely not an adventurer, but I'm adventurous. I, I don't know how yet, but I'm going to have to put all of these I'm not an adventurer lines together from everybody that quite clearly is. Um, it's an interesting word. I mean, we I've spoken to a few people about what makes someone an adventurer, what makes someone an explorer, what definitely doesn't make someone an explorer, which is a very big thing at the minute in terms of authenticity, in inverted commas. Yeah, definitely but not an explorer. We don't need to go into it. I would say you are an adventurer, but that Okay, that's just... nice. Well, I'll take that as a compliment from you. Um... <laughs> So in the interest of people, we talked a little bit about empowering people and getting other people into this. Mm. What mistakes have you made? Oh, my God, so many. I have made so many mistakes. Um, I think that I didn't realise. Okay, that's a really good question. Let me think about it, because you have to make mistakes. Otherwise, you're going to get nowhere. So I have it's critical to fuck up, um, as you know, because there's, it's, um, I've made mistakes in my filming. I've made mistakes with, um, I think I don't think about things. And and so that whole jump in, jump in, it's great if it scares you, but maybe think about things slightly more carefully, Sophie. Um, but then again, maybe not, I don't know. Um, I, have learnt by every single mistake. That's the most critical thing. And also not to, that, you know, that, that temptation when you've, you know, you've, you've had a shot and the camera's misfired or you've mucked up, you know, um, and it hasn't gone right or a piece of kit fails or you've broken a bit of kit. There is a temptation to kind of really berate yourself and take it very, very personally. So I think the one thing that I've really learned is not to take it personally. And I still, by the way, take it really personally, but I really try not to take things personally because it doesn't help. I think that's a function of passion, though. Yeah. You can't help but take it personally when it matters that much. It does, but also sometimes you just have to let it go and realise that actually, yeah, it's happened. Jog on. Come on, move on. Let's get on with it. And, and... It's not all about you, obviously, right? It's not all about you. So it's really good to be out in nature and reminded constantly on a daily basis. It's nothing to do with you apart from the crap stuff that we're interfering with. But, you know, that this is... And looking at nature, looking at nature recovering, whether it's a cheetah losing her cubs or a penguin watching its, you know, baby being skewered, literally. Um, you know, you they just get on with it because they've got a function they don't have the whole you know luxury of our lives but the the being in the moment and functioning and i don't quite know what i'm trying to say but i think that yeah i don't know the don't taking it not don't take it personally thing is i as i say i'm not very good at it but i'm going to carry on trying and being passionate i think it's extremely good advice i wish somebody told me that 10 years ago and it's nice to hear you say it now okay Good. Why? What? In what relation to what? I take everything personally. Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? Yeah. Everything. Yeah. Successes, failures, all of it. I can't help yeah. but get very. Um, I need thicker armour. Yeah, and and actually, the good times when the when the times are good, just enjoy them because for sure they're going to get bad. 
There is just no such thing. That roller coaster, it's going to carry on going and you just have to hold on and remember at the good times because when it's really rubbish and, you know, whatever it might be, you, you're going to need those, so bank them. That's not just expedition filmmaking or wildlife filmmaking, is it? That's life. I guess, yeah. Wow. Okay, yeah, all right then. That's just all we know. <laughs> yeah, it is, but it is. It's so, it, it, you know... When you're sitting there and, and, and being an optimist every day, I have to get up and believe I'm going to get that shot, right? I'm sure you do too. I am going to get out there. I'm going to, you know, and and if you didn't have that, I don't believe that I'm patient. I genuinely don't. I think I'm optimistic. And I think that's the trait I bring with me, um, not the patience. Okay, so four finale questions then. Go on then, give it a whirl. As quick fire as you want them to be. Yeah, go on, be quick. We'll start with the sad one first. So... On a grand holistic scale, what worries you? Oh, climate change is immense. It's terrifying. Forget Brexit, it's nothing. Genuinely. Climate change is so huge. What gives you hope? Children, absolutely. Those kids marching last week, totally. Because if enough of them do it, that will make a difference. So, yeah, absolutely, the, the kids. But we've got to stand up and make sure we stand next to those kids, beside those kids, and shout for them, as well as letting them shout. We can't fob them off. Yeah, brilliant. And then the Alistair Humphreys question that will make sense to people that listen to this regularly. Um, what do you think 80-year-old you would advise you to do with the rest of your life? Um, carry on taking those risks actually carry on trying on the uncomfortable and and actually yeah yeah make it your make it your business to to leave a legacy please i I just want to i want to make sure that yeah excellent and then which brings me beautifully onto my very last question which is if there's one thing people should watch that you have created (gasps) what is it sorry Sorry. Ah, oh, it hasn't been made yet. It That's hasn't been made answer. yet. <laughs> no, it, it's. Uh, I think that ties in with the pride. I want to make something, and I think that involves being more than a camera person. It has to be about bringing it from the beginning to the end. So hopefully, by the time I'm eighty, I can sit there and go, "I'd like you to watch this." <laughs> So once you once you've made it, we can talk again, and you can yeah. tell us what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm. Oh God, there's a couple of things. If I can get them off the ground, they would be really exciting. Amazing. Thank you very, very much. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on Sophie Darlington, please head to the Adventure Podcast.co.uk, where there's a bit of info and some links in the show notes. This podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft and produced by Pip Saunders and Tom Cargriffin. If you're a fan of this sort of content, then head to sidetrack.com for more sensational stories of adventure. And as ever, my final note is the usual plea to uh, like and share and follow and all of those usual social media things, this podcast. Please tell your friends and all of the people that you think will enjoy this or be inspired by it or need it in their lives. And please absolutely do leave us a review on itunes um they're incredibly helpful and we've had some wonderful ones recently and if nothing else it really does make my day and absolutely feel free to write to us at info at the adventure podcast.co.uk 
if you have a recommendation for a guest or just fancy saying hello, 